Hi, this is Andrew Phillips. Thank you for downloading the Gramier Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions or if you'd like to contact us, check out our website at gramier.com. We'd also love for you to visit with us in a worship service. You're always welcome at Gramier Church of Christ. We appreciate all those who are able to join us online. It's been an interesting week, hasn't it? It's amazing how something that's out of our control can just sort of stop us in our tracks. I don't know about you, but I was thinking a little bit this week uh, about just the beauty of God's creation, but also the power uh, and just how much power we think we have until something happens that keeps us from being able to do what we want to do. And so I'm thankful for the opportunity we still have uh, to stay connected and to make sure that uh, we have time to worship together and to focus on God's Word. And so as we continue to think about that, you may want to go ahead and be turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be spending some time together. Our theme this year is kingdom. We're thinking about what it means to serve in the kingdom of God. And there are several different metaphors that you could probably think of in Scripture that are used to describe the people of God. Uh, we might read about the body of Christ, thinking about how we're all to work together, and He is the head, and we're all working for Him. We're His hands and feet. It's a powerful image. Maybe we think about the image of family, being brothers and sisters in Christ, and what does it mean for us to truly be family together. That's a powerful picture. But I've noticed over the last several weeks as we've been thinking about this theme, just how often the term kingdom shows up all throughout scripture and how it's used to describe God's people. And one of the most helpful things I think we can keep in mind about the kingdom is it keeps us from having a self-centered view of our role in serving God. There are so many things in life that are just set up for us to be at the center of it, for us to be the ones making the decisions and for us to be the ones uh, using our preferences to guide things. And when we think about a kingdom, even though we don't live in a kingdom necessarily on, on a physical terrain, we're not uh, ruled by a king or queen, we know what it's like to have a ruler on the throne and just that picture is a reminder that if there's someone else on the throne, then we aren't. And so the, the power of this over the last few weeks has been, we've been humbled by thinking about our role as servants in the kingdom and not the ones sitting on the throne. We would like to be on the throne of our own lives. We would like to be making those decisions. And yet scripture reminds us of who's truly in control. We started off by thinking about the identity of God's kingdom, of the way in which it was prophesied or the way in which it's come to earth and what, the way in which God's reign can continue uh, to advance as long as there are hearts that are out there that haven't yet obeyed Christ, that haven't yet become part of that kingdom. We can share the message of the kingdom. And last week, we spent some time looking at parables that Jesus tells, giving us the nature of this kingdom. It's not like what we might normally picture, an organization that's focused on earthly power or worldly wealth. There's something different here. And as we think about our own service in the kingdom, 
I want to share with us a passage from the New Testament by one of God's servants, one of the servants of the kingdom, the Apostle Paul. Now, one of the things we're going to notice as we read this passage in 2 Corinthians 3 is that he's drawing from an Old Testament passage that's also important for us to understand. So before we get to this morning's passage, I want us to think about this Old Testament passage that happened right after the children of Israel were liberated by God from Egypt. After Moses led them out, they eventually make their way to Mount Sinai, where they would receive the law. The people of Israel promised to do all the words of the law. And that's interesting to read that in the text. That's the commitment they make. They're going to do all the words of the law in Exodus 24. Then you have the glory of the Lord dwelling on Mount Sinai. And the text tells us that it was like a devouring fire in their sight. Moses is called up and stays there for 40 days. In the meantime, the same Israelites who had promised to do all the words of the Lord start to worry. Now, again, think about how long 40 days is. Just having a few snow days in a row or a few days at home, all of a sudden, four or five days seems like a lot longer when we're waiting for what's going to happen next. Can you imagine the waiting for 40 days? They'd said they were going to do everything God had told them. They had seen the plagues that allowed them to leave Egypt. They'd seen the waters of the Red Sea parted. But those 40 days, they start to get restless. And it's during that time that they give their gold to Aaron and that he makes this golden calf. Of course, as he describes it to Moses, he says, we put it in the fire and out came this golden calf. But it was modeled after what they would have seen in Egypt. Uh, they would have seen uh, animals worshipped in idol form. And so it's likely that's where they were getting this image. And so once that happens, then you have Moses, upon discovering it, breaking the tablets which hold the Ten Commandments. And then something interesting, God tells the Israelites that he cannot go with him. And the tent of meeting is set up outside the camp. And so then Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. He stands before God, pleading for God to be among his people. And because of Moses' intercession, God renews that covenant. And as a part of that, Moses asks to see God's glory. And here's how God responds. He takes Moses and places him on the rock so that he can get a glimpse of the back of God's glory. And here's what God proclaimed to him. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Part of Moses seeing God's glory included God's description of himself. A lot of times when we think of glory, we think purely in terms of something that's bright or that's shiny or that's striking or that's visually stunning, and that's part of it. But the glory of God also includes the character of God. His nature is glorious, his righteous nature. And so he describes his steadfast love and forgiveness. And yet in the same description, 
will also describe the punishment for sin. Uh, And even using that term, thinking about their fathers and their children and children's children, uh, it's important for us to remember that this is a time when you would have three, maybe even four generations that would be living together. And so you had uh, someone who would be leading a household, often have his children and grandchildren there. And so the idea is the sins of one individual can affect his entire household. But in this description, after all of this happened, Moses sees God's glory. He hears this description of God. Moses came down from Mount Sinai, but there's something different. He doesn't realize it, but the skin on his face is shining. And so once Moses speaks to the people and realizes the the skin on his face is shining, he puts a veil over his face. And the text tells us that when he goes to receive a word from God, He takes the veil off. But when he's among the people, there's a veil over his face. We don't know exactly in the text all the reasons that that happened. Uh, It may be because people were unsettled by that idea. Uh, If you think about how they reacted when God's glory was on Mount Sinai, uh, they were afraid. When they saw the flames, when they heard the thunder, it struck fear in them. In fact, the people you know, told uh, Moses, you go talk to him. We're, we can't handle this. We're, there was something about the glory of God that was striking to them. And so it may be that Moses uh, put the veil over his face in order for that same effect not to happen among the people. But we see how Paul uses this imagery in a very powerful way when we get to the book of Second Corinthians. So if you're in 2 Corinthians 3, now we're transitioning from the kingdom of Israel and the law of Moses to now we're looking at living under the new covenant. And Paul is ministering to people, and there's something that we can tell as we work through the text here, which is Paul has some opponents. There are some people who were challenging Paul's legitimacy as an apostle and challenging his right to be able to share God's word. And so helping us know that background will help us understand chapter 3. He says in verse 4, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. 
But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, a veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now this is a dense passage, and there have been a lot of different questions that people have asked over the years uh, about different aspects of it. But I think as we read through it in light of what we know from Exodus and what we know from the New Covenant, there are some very important principles here uh, that I think ring clearly for us today. And it may seem like a strange place to go if we're thinking about what it means to serve in the kingdom. But I want us just to reflect on the fact that when you walk into a throne room, when you picture a palace throughout history, when the place where kings and, queen, king, and kings and queens dwell has been created, it was created for the purpose of uh, sort of enhancing the glory and the power of the ruler. From the architecture, the way things are constructed, the way in which the throne room is created, the, the materials that are used that are intended to show wealth and to show power, the glory of the ruler has been so important because the idea was if you went in and you saw the glory of the ruler, that would change your perception. We're reminded in this passage that we serve a God whose glory doesn't need any enhancement from anyone else. And the more we can understand his true glory, the better we'll be able to serve in the kingdom. And so here's how Paul describes this glorious king and his service to that king. First of all, he says that the power of the king is what equipped him. The power of God is what equipped Paul to do what he's doing. True competence, adequacy, as the New American Standard uh, translates it, can only come from God. Now, this makes sense to us, because even if we think back to Moses, Moses' qualifications to lead came only from God. Do you remember what happens in Exodus chapter 3, when there's a bush that's on fire, and Moses turns to see what's there, and all of a sudden, God is giving him his mission? And when God gives Moses his mission, how does Moses respond? He begins to think of reasons that he can't do what God is asking him to do. And the first is... Who am I to do this? And notice God's response. When Moses asks, who am I? God does not say, oh, you're a great guy. You've got a lot of abilities. You, you are going to be able to do this. You've got so much talent. It's not going to be a problem for you. God says, I will be with you. What's the definition for Moses' qualification to lead people? That God was with him. That's the beginning of everything. And so as we go through, even though Moses keeps pushing back, God keeps giving him these reminders, I am going to be with you. You're wondering who you are to do this. You're the one who's with me. And that's Moses' qualification. The entire process of the Exodus was a reminder that it was God that was leading the people of Israel. It was God's power seen in the plagues. It was God's power that parted the Red Sea. It was God that provided manna. Over and over again, he's reminding them, your qualification, your competence to lead, your competence to survive in the wilderness— that comes from me. And Paul's qualifications to serve as an apostle, they came from 
God. He says God's the one who's made us adequate. We're not adequate of ourselves. Paul had some opponents, and evidently they were accusing him of maybe not being very impressive in person, maybe not being very rhetorically effective or eloquent. Uh, And so as he's dealing with these challenges, Paul's reminding them that his competence doesn't come from his own natural talent and ability. His competence comes from God. God's the one who's equipping him to serve. In fact, just a chapter earlier, he described how we're led in triumph. Uh, In other words, it's as if uh, Christ is our victorious general who is leading those of us who are now under his command in a triumphal procession. And in verse 16 of chapter 2, he states, who is adequate for these things? Who who could possibly have enough adequacy to serve? Well, chapter 3 gives us the answer. God makes us adequate. God made Paul adequate. And so his true qualifications and his competence as a servant only came from God. Uh, Even the talents and abilities that we have, we didn't generate ourselves. Uh, We were either born with them, others invested and poured their lives into us so that we could learn the things that we've learned. All of those things are blessings from God. Not only could true competence only come from God, but true confidence could only come from him as well. Moses could stand confidently before the people because God was with him. And Paul says that he has confidence to make the claims that he is because that confidence comes from God. This is helpful for us to reflect on our own service. Any competence, abilities we have, any confidence we have, that doesn't come from us. We rely on God to equip us to face different circumstances and challenges around us. There are probably people whose abilities you admire, and they use them for the Lord, and we can be thankful for that. But we can also remember the true source of those abilities. James Thompson tells the story of a devout believer who was summoned before a Nazi court during Hitler's reign. This individual looked around and decided that as he was answering the questions, he was the only free person in the room. Now, technically, he was a prisoner, and technically there were people that outranked him in authority and in power. But as he looked around at the magistrates and the troops who were questioning them, he could see on their faces that they themselves were living in dread. They were living in fear. The only one who was free to speak was the one who didn't serve their master was the one who served another master. That gave him confidence. And I think that picture is helpful for us to reflect on the confidence that we have in Christians. As Christians, it's not confidence in ourselves and in our own ability. Uh, We're not just self-assured because we can handle everything, but we're confident because we know the master that we serve. And so the confidence doesn't come from arrogance. It comes from trust in God. Think about how our service in the kingdom might be different if we began with a view of God's power. Think about our worship. How would our worship be changed if we're focused on the, before everything else, reflecting on the power of God? On Sunday nights, as we're going through Revelation, one of the things we're going to notice uh, is that chapters four and five, centered on that throne room image, are going to serve as a constant reminder that everything the Christians needed to know in the first century and that we need to know today 
is based on the fact that God reigns, that he is powerful. And so if I'm going to worship God and I begin with an understanding that he is powerful, then maybe my thoughts about worship will be different. Maybe I'll consider my own preferences or opinions in a different light if I'm reminded that I'm here to worship the one who's in power. Maybe my worship can be more focused and full of meaning instead of necessarily dwelling on myself and what my concerns are. We're going to have worries. We're going to have challenges that we face. And when we come into worship, we'll bring those with us. Those are going to be weighing on our minds. But a reminder of God's glory can put all of those things into perspective. His power can remind us that our ultimate goal in worship whether we're together, whether we're worshiping in our homes, our ultimate goal is that God will be glorified. I don't worship in order solely just to satisfy my own desires and my own needs, although worship tends to do that, but that's a byproduct of glorifying God. And if my focus is on God's power and God reigning, everything else will line up the way that I worship, my discussions about worship, my thoughts about worship. If I understand God's power, it'll be in perspective. How would our edification of each other be changed if we began by thinking about God's power? We're supposed to build each other up. We're constantly reminded in these one another passages in the New Testament. Well, how does that look differently if I remember who's truly on the throne, who's truly reigning? Sometimes we're going to disagree as Christians, sometimes we'll have conflict, there'll be difficulty, we might be jealous, we might be resentful, but focusing on the power of God reminds all of us that we're only able to live the way we live, we're only able to have the promise we do because of his power. It puts all of our other disputes in the proper perspective. And when we think about the power that God has to bring us all together, we can realize we can be unified, no matter our differences, uh, no matter different backgrounds, different experiences. Uh, we can come together as part of God's kingdom because we're all serving the one who reigns. How would our service be changed if we focused first on God's power? Would we be willing to try things that might scare us a little bit, that might make us a little nervous? if we're reminded that God is ultimately in control? Would we be motivated maybe to serve if we thought less about how much it was costing us and more about the privilege we have to serve our powerful God? It is so easy to get caught up in how much something costs me and what am I going to have to give up and what am I going to have to sacrifice? And a reminder of God's power tells us, you know, I need to be glorifying the God who has given me all that I have. The power of God is what equips us. If we're serving in the kingdom, focusing on the king is going to help equip us for service. But then also this passage remind us, reminds us that it's the glory of the king that transforms us. Paul said it's that glory that transforms him and also he includes all Christians who are reading that. It's the power of the king that equipped Paul to serve. And that same power of that same king equips us in our service. But it's the glory of the Lord that transforms us. Now on Mount Sinai, only Moses could go up to speak to God. 
He was the only one who could see the glory of God and even then could only see a glimpse of the back of God's glory as he passed by. And even that was enough to give him this, uh, this glory that uh, caused his skin uh, to radiate. But it's interesting that as Paul describes the new covenants, uh, and in comparison to the law of Moses, uh, notice how he describes the different glory. So he uses this imagery to make an important point that as great as this glory that Moses experienced was, even greater is the glory that we have living under the covenant that we do. He compares the mission of Moses to his using a common argument from lesser to greater. He's not downplaying the importance of the Hebrew Bible or the law of Moses, but he's emphasizing the preeminence of Christ. And so as he describes the two, he talks about the old covenant, the covenant of the letter. He says that covenant of the letter kills. In other words, it shows the punishment for sin. It it shows what sin costs, but the spirit gives life. He said the covenant of the letter brings condemnation. We see what the punishment is, but this new covenant brings righteousness. And he says the covenant of the letter is fading, just like the glory that was reflected in Moses' face was fading. But this new covenant is lasting. Think about what it would take for Paul to say that. For one who was schooled at the feet of a teacher like Gamaliel, who had all of Uh, these things going for him as he was rising up the ranks of Pharisees and observing the law of Moses to realize that living under the new covenant was an even greater glory. Again, he's not downplaying the importance of the old covenant for the time in which it was given, but he's trying to stress how much greater it is that these promises that were made in the old covenant have been realized in Christ. Maybe we can think about it this way. Imagine that you're in a cave You're in a dark cave trying desperately to get your way out, and you have a flashlight. The flashlight's really powerful. The light's really helpful. It helps you navigate that cave. And then when you step out of the cave into daylight, that flashlight can still be on, but it's not going to be nearly as bright because now you're in daylight. Now you're in a source of light that overwhelms it. It's not that there was anything wrong with it. It's just that it served the purpose to bring you where you needed to be. And I I believe we see a similar way in which the law of Moses was designed to bring them where they needed to be now to the covenant we live under today, to the time of Christ. And here's why that's important. Because Paul is saying that glory was temporary. That glory was fading. Only Moses could experience it. But now he uses the phrase, we all in verse 18. We can all behold with unveiled face. We don't have to have a veil separating the glory of God from the world around us. We can all behold his glory. When John described Jesus coming to earth in John 1 verse 14, he says, we saw his glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we read about Jesus, that means we're witnessing his glory God gave us a way to see his glory and to live, to see his glory and to understand it. And it's something we must intentionally behold. The imagery Paul uses here in chapter three is like looking at a a reflective surface with a steady gaze. We don't get to see face to face yet, not this side of eternity, 
but we do get to see the glory of God as described here as a reflection, and we get to reflect that. We'll become what we focus on. If we focus on the culture around us, we'll reflect the culture around us. But if we focus on the glory of God, we can be transformed. John would say in 1 John 3, 2, we will be like him. Paul would tell the church at Rome in Romans 12, you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have this ability to see the glory of God. And as Paul continues to describe this difference between what was visible under the old covenant, but now there was, there was a veil there, there was a separation, but now that's been removed. Now we can see the glory that God has made known to his people. And it's that glory of the king that transforms us. I have to intentionally behold that glory. I have to decide I'm going to take the time and the effort. The glory of God is probably a concept we would do well to spend more time thinking about. At least I know I would, because it's like seeing that term kingdom. When you start looking for glory throughout Scripture, uh, you constantly see it woven all throughout both the Old and New Testament. So it's the power of the king that equips us to serve him. All the abilities we have, the opportunities that we've been given, those are blessings from God for us to take advantage of. Now, we have to make the decision to do the work. We've got to take advantage of those opportunities, but it's God who has provided them for us. And then the glory of the king, that's what's going to transform us, focusing on his glory, looking to him, as Hebrews would describe, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's what's going to allow us to grow, to reflect his glory to the world around us. And as we're reflections to him, hopefully that can draw others to him as well. And so when we think about serving in the kingdom, let's take some time this week to think more about the power of the king and more about his glory and see if that doesn't change our perspective. Now, I know this is different than we're used to. It's usually the case that we're in the auditorium and we can see each other's faces and we can give each other hugs if you need encouragement. But we do want to be reminded that the invitation is not limited only to those moments. Those are good opportunities uh, for us to be reminded of the Lord's invitation. But that invitation is always open, whether we're worshiping together in the auditorium or whether we're doing it in our homes as we are today. So just a reminder, if you're interested in learning more about Scripture, if you'd like to study, if you're thinking about becoming a Christian, about putting Christ on in baptism, please let us know. We would love to study with you if you're ready to take that step. We would love to make that happen and to celebrate that with you. If you could contact one of the ministers, one of the elders, uh, we would love to help you in any way that we can. It may be that you could use prayers or encouragement. Uh, on our online check-in, there's that box that gives you uh, a chance to share announcements or prayer requests. That's a great way to let us know what we can pray for. But I would also encourage you just to send someone a call or a text if you could use prayers. Uh, we want to encourage you in any way that we can. Uh, we do know this weekend's plans are a little bit different than we had originally set out, and we hope that you'll stay tuned for more updates. Just as a reminder, there will be a sermon posted for tonight uh, to help you with the time of Bible study this evening. Also, if you are looking for maybe some activities to do as a family, 
just Wednesday night, uh, JD posted a family devotional that I'd encourage you if, you, if you didn't see that, it's on our Facebook group, but take advantage of that. That might be another opportunity. Uh, and if nothing else, I would just encourage us to take time uh, with our family at some point just to, to read and discuss a passage of God's Word together. It doesn't have to be anything too formal, but sitting down and just discussing God's Word together, maybe over lunch, maybe just throughout the afternoon. Uh, we want to continue to encourage all of us to keep growing together.